Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're covering the life of Grana Nemale, often anglicized as Grace O'Malley, but for the purpose of this episode, I'll be calling her Grania O'Malley. She was a late 16th century chieftain in Western Ireland who challenged almost every facet of Irish existence at the time. She's also known by the nickname the Pirate Queen due to her lifelong relationship with the waters off the western shores of County Mayo in Ireland. We're coming into this episode right off the back of completing the episode of the Irish High King Brian Boru, but the 16th century Ireland of Grania O'Malley that we'll be seeing is very different from the 10th century Ireland of Brian. We'll now be well within the time period that Ireland's neighbor England is getting a stranglehold on the island, and Grania will definitely be involved with that part of her homeland's history. In fact, Grania is perhaps most famous for a meeting she had with Queen Elizabeth I where the two women met face to face. And actually, a lot of historical records over her life come from that of English writers, not Irish ones. But the meeting of two powerful female politicians, something pretty rare for this period of history, will have to wait until much later in Grania's tale. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to 16th century Ireland in By the Grace of Grania. In the background history lesson, we'll be covering the historical relationship between Ireland and England. There's a lot to unpack there, so I'm not going to try to cover everything. But even with that, this will probably be a longer background than normal. Like I said, this is a different Ireland from the divided medieval island of Brian Boru. So this background history lesson will cover how we get from well over 100 kings ruling throughout Ireland, each having different levels of power, to essentially one formal ruler, more or less, acting under English control. Let's very briefly talk about the old, old relationship between Ireland and England. We'll get back to the early modern English control portion later, but I want to go in chronological order here. Even before the Roman invasion and conquest of England began with Julius Caesar, the two islands were closely linked as they were hotbeds of Celtic culture. And that's Celtic in the more modern sense that can almost be interchanged with Gaelic, and not in the Roman sense meaning anyone not Roman in Western Europe. Even after Rome conquered England, or Britannia as it was known then, the two islands enjoyed that mutual relationship. Obviously, one of the bigger moments of someone from England coming over to Ireland and changing things up was a 5th century Romano-Briton by the name of Patricius, aka St. Patrick. And even when the Norse who had settled in England began invading Ireland, it actually only provided further connection with the Norse Gaels having political ties to the people of Northumbria, a historical Anglo-Saxon kingdom in northern England. So Ireland came out of the early medieval and Viking era, which lasted from around 800 CE to the mid-12th century, mostly unchanged except for the power of the High King of Ireland. Brian Boru had proved in the early 11th century that one man could actually control all of Ireland, though that would not really be the case again for quite a bit of time. 
In the early to mid-12th century, a king in Western Ireland by the name of Turlogh Moore O'Connor, and that's the anglicized version of his name FYI, sought to become the next Brian Boru and more or less succeeded. As High King, Turlogh Moore began to modernize Ireland, at least modernize in a medieval sense. He was said to be one of the first kings to build a castle on the island. His modernization helped Ireland build political and commercial relationships with its neighbors, mainly England, France, and Spain. His reign had helped bring Ireland onto the international stage. Unfortunately, not all the outside eyes on Ireland were keen on peaceful relationships. But first we need to mention one Irish king, Dermot MacMahada of Leinster in southeastern Ireland. In the mid-12th century, he was forced out of Ireland by the new High King of Ireland and sought safety in the region of Aquitaine in France, which was then under the reign of King Henry II of England, the father of Richard the Lionheart. With Henry's permission, Diarmid hired an army of Norman knights. The Normans were an ethnic group that had come to exist after the Norse settled in western France and intermingled with the Franks, a Germanic group of people in France, and the Gallo-Romans, who themselves were an ethnic group composed of the mixing of the Romans with the natives of the historical region of Gaul. The Normans themselves had conquered England a century before. The first Normans arrived on Irish soil in 1167 where they quickly began taking out kings who were opposed to the rule of Diarmid MacMarcada. Diarmid then named his stepson, who was a Norman, as his heir. Henry II, realizing that he didn't actually want Ireland to become a Norman state, decided that this all had to change. Something slightly bizarre happened next. At this point, the Pope was Adrian IV, the only Englishman to ever be elected to the position. Adrian issued a papal bull called the Laudabilitar, one of the few papal decrees that we don't actually have a copy of. That makes any modern interpretation of it a bit hard. It's believed though that this papal bull somehow allowed Henry II to gain control of Ireland with the full backing of the Christian Church. Henry led his own army into Ireland and started asserting dominance over the island, also becoming the first English king to set foot on the island. In order to see that things would continue under his rule, he named his son John, the younger brother of Richard the Lionheart and future King of England and Robin Hood villain, as Lord of Ireland. When his father and older brother died, John's position of a Lord of Ireland was added to the many titles granted to whoever held the throne of England. By this point, the native Gaelic people of Ireland had very little control over their homeland. The Norman invasion had supplanted many local Irish kings with Norman lords. Even when England intervened, many of those Norman lords still existed just now under the rule of the English. But in a bizarre turn of events, in the 1340s, a new ally came to help bring back Gaelic control to the island. And its name was the Bubonic Plague. Yup. You see, the native Irish people mostly lived in smaller communities and villages while the English and Normans lived in larger cities. With the plague tearing through the larger communities, it was the Irish who would mostly survive and seek to reclaim the island. The only remaining English control was in a region called the Pale, which was mostly centered along the eastern coast near Dublin. 
Gaelic control had returned to Ireland, at least for a little bit. English control of Ireland, which at this point had more or less been transferred to a position known as the Lord Deputy of Ireland, sought to once more gain control during the latter half of the 15th century. The Lord Deputies of this time began asserting military dominance across the nation, with their major victory being the enactment of Poyning's Law in 1494, a law which made it illegal for the Irish Parliament to meet without the approval of the English Parliament. From then on, things remained in a somewhat awkwardly stable position until the reign of King Henry VIII of England. With England now under control of the Tudor dynasty, Henry VIII sought to take full control of Ireland once and for all. And while that control did not come to pass under his rule, things very much began to change when his daughter took the throne. And it is during this time where our story can truly begin. Grania was born around 1530 in County Mayo during the reign of King Henry VIII. Her father was Yoan Duvdara O'Malley, anglicized as Owen Black Oak O'Malley. Yoan was the chieftain of the O'Malley clan in Lord of Uel, a region in County Mayo around Clue Bay that was under the command of the Anglo-Norman Burke clan. The O'Malleys were well known as a seafaring group. This means that while they did their fair share of legitimate trading, they were also involved in something akin to what can only be referred to as legal piracy. A lot of, if you pass through here, chip in something to us. Or else. It's said that Grania's relationship with sailing started at a very young age when she asked her father if she could go with him on one of his many sailing expeditions. I'm sure that as a young kid, many stories place her around 10 or 11 years old, she had asked him time and time again, each time with him saying something like, no you can't, to which she would respond, why not, to which her father would say, because I said so. Well, eventually Yoan told his daughter that she couldn't join his crew because her long hair would get caught in the ship's rigging. Showing off her tenacity and rebellious nature at a young age, it said that Grania cut off her hair, which meant Yoan didn't really have any more excuses. Once she was allowed aboard, the other sailors gave her the nickname Grania Whale, meaning Grania the Bald, though some people think it might have been a play on words from Grania of Whale. The nickname would stick with her for the rest of her life. Also, if you listen to the Brian Poru episodes, I said Irish is hard for non-native speakers, mostly English native speakers, so here's something to help you understand. The Irish word whale, meaning bald or close-cropped hair, is spelled M-H-A-O-L. If you saw that as an English speaker, you might think it's pronounced something like maul. Nope, it's whale. Speaking of the Irish language, it would have been her first and primary language. It suggested that Grania learned and spoke several languages throughout her life considering she was a chieftain's daughter. We know she could also speak Latin, but some others tossed around are Spanish and English, though probably not to any significant degree of proficiency. She was probably given a very generous level of care and education, considering she was the only daughter of the O'Malley chieftain and his wife Maeve. 
She had a paternal half-brother named Donal, given the nickname Donal Napiopa, aka Donal of the Pipes, but given how Grania's life will go, it's probably assumed that Donal was not necessarily the favorite child of Leoin. Favorite child status or not, Grania did not get too much time to enjoy her fine education and seafaring life. She was still a young woman living during the Renaissance, and the daughter of a nobleman at that. So, in 1546, at the age of 15, Grania was married to a man named Donal O'Flaherty. Donal O'Flaherty, nicknamed Donal Anjoega, meaning Donal of the Battle, again, I'm doing my best here, was the Tanishta of the O'Flaherty clan. Tanishta meaning heir to the chief and is also the term used in modern Ireland to refer to the deputy prime minister. As the future clan chief, Donal was set to rule over the territory known as Yerikhanacht, a territory that covers lands now in County Galway. The O'Flaherty had once been a powerful clan until the Norman Burks came in and took over. Though they made several attempts at trying to take back their territory, the Burks would continue ruling over Connacht. Grania and Donal had three children together, two sons named Yoan and Murrow, and a daughter named Maeve. They were married for 20 years, spanning the final years of Henry VIII's reign, the entire reign of Queen Mary, and the beginning years of Queen Elizabeth I. This was a tumultuous time for Irish history as the Tudor dynasty began further sinking its claws into the people of Ireland. But Grania and her family lived in the far west of Ireland, land where the English crown had not really found a way to get control. But like I said, Grania and Donal were only married for about 20 years until Donal was killed in battle. It's believed that he was killed while fighting against the rival Joyce family for the control of a castle on Loch Corrib, which is the largest lake in the Republic of Ireland. With her husband now dead, Grania moved her family back to O'Malley-controlled territory, specifically Clare Island and Clue Bay, which would become her main base of operations and to this day houses a castle known as Granuel Castle. For a brief time, she was able to go back to the family trade. Grania's ships were an evolved version of the Viking longship, but with more advanced hull and sail designs that made them better for traversing the open waters of the ocean. Some of her ships were even said to be able to hold up to 200 sailors. With these ships, she was able to sail as far as Northern Ireland off of Scotland and even as far south as Spain. But Grania probably stayed closer to home for the most part because that was where the wealth was at. Since ancient times up until the early modern period, Irish chiefs and kings didn't measure their wealth in gold. I mean, some probably did, but that wasn't the main method. No, a sign of wealth in Ireland was how many cattle a chieftain owned. Cattle raids, the act of going out and stealing another clan's cattle, were one of the main ways of attaining wealth outside of getting cows or bulls as part of a dowry. Because of the need for cows, Grania's ships would have also been built to securely hold those precious bovines. It's also believed that at some point in the year after Donal's death, Grania saved a sailor from a shipwreck and took him on as her lover. This unnamed man, however, was eventually killed during a conflict with one of the O'Malley's rivals, the McMahon clan of Ballyvoy. 
seeking revenge for her lost love, which, by the way, was not something she did for her husband, so it says a lot about that marriage, Branya led an army to the McMahon fortress of Duna Castle where she killed the men who had killed her sailor boyfriend. This quick revenge story, though, earned Grania the nickname Dark Lady of Duna. In fact, after her death, one of the Lord Deputies of Ireland claimed that she had a proven knack for leading armies, despite the fact that she was never a military leader, just a ship captain with incredible charisma who was very good at her job. But even though she was a powerful leader on the seas and back home in Uel, once again, it was her duty as the daughter of a clan chief to get married and bring prestige to the O'Malley clan. So in 1566, a year after the death of her first husband, and presumably also after the death of her sailor boyfriend, Grania was married to Iron Richard Burke, the Tanishta of County Mayo. Iron, Richard Burke's nickname, came from an ironworks near his main fortress in Burishul. He was the 18th MacWilliam Yoktar, the title conferred upon the Burke's leaders of northern Connacht, mostly the region containing County Mayo. He is recorded as being a ferocious battle-hardened leader, though not necessarily that intelligent and probably also illiterate. Luckily, he was married to Grania, who is always recorded as being very intelligent and well-read. We know of at least one child the couple had, Tippet Nalong Burke. Nalong means of the ships and refers to a legend surrounding his birth. Even after being married to Iron Richard, Grania would still go out pirating. This was true even when she was pregnant. The story says that he was born on one of Grania's ships, and then his mother immediately decided to lead said ship into a naval battle against pirates from northern Africa. While the story sounds a bit insane, there's enough written accounts from that time that talk about the story, meaning that it just might have some truth to it. There's also another story that talks about the divorce of Grania and Iron Richard, so clearly things weren't all that great between them. While Ireland was a Catholic nation by this point, meaning that divorce was illegal from a religious standpoint, Connacht was still deeply entrenched in the older Irish laws. Divorce laws in ancient Ireland were kind of like the Wild West. They often favored the wife in a marriage, and she could divorce her husband for almost anything, really. But marriage in pre-Christian Ireland also held a different significance than it does in modern-day Christian nations. Yeah, people could marry for love, but it was usually more contractual and all about bringing in property, aka cattle. I've also read stories that say the first year of a pre-Christian Irish marriage was almost like a trial period, and at the end of the year a wife could just decide she didn't want to be married anymore. And that was it. Marriage annulled. The story of Grania and Richard's divorce say that Richard was out on some sort of military raid. When he came back, Grania shouted at him from a castle window saying that she dismissed him and wanted a divorce. According to the old laws, this was kinda valid. In Grania's eyes, she had divorced her husband. 
but even though Connacht was more Old Irish than, let's say, the Pale, it was still under the laws of the Catholic Church. So on paper, the couple were still married. Grania even still offered advice to her kinda ex-husband. And he would need that advice when the Tudor dynasty and the Lord Deputy of Ireland finally decided to squeeze down on the rulers of Western Ireland. In the late 1530s, King Henry VIII decided to secure English control over the island of Ireland. He began offering a deal known as Surrender and Regrant. Under this offer, Gaelic Irish and Norman Irish chieftains would swear fealty to the English crown but could then buy back their land with some sense of autonomy. If they refused, then the English crown's forces in Ireland would come in and coerce them into accepting a worse offer. Under Surrender and Regrant, which was essentially just feudalism with a fancier sounding name, the people now living in English-controlled lands were expected to speak English, dress like the English, follow English law, and reject the Roman Catholic Church in favor of the Anglican Church. During the early decades, a lot of Irish lords remained within the Catholic Church, as the Anglican Church wasn't fully separated from the Catholic Church until 1570 when Pope Pius V excommunicated Queen Elizabeth. Though it may sound kind of obvious, it was much easier to get this process going in Eastern and Northern Ireland because they were closer to England than the provinces of Munster and Connacht. However, the slow speed with which Surrender and Grant was spreading across Ireland allowed for the chieftains of Munster and Connacht to band together to stop the forces of English imperialism. The first of the major revolts against the English crown was the Desmond Rebellion out of Munster. The then ruling Lord Deputy of Ireland, Sir Henry Sidney, had proposed setting up what he called Lord Presidencies, which were effectively just military leaders acting as governors within Munster and Connacht since they were the places still out of English control. Two local chieftains thought a great solution to disrupting English rule was to fight each other. Just one problem. One of those chiefs, Thomas Butler, was Queen Elizabeth's cousin. He got a simple slap on the wrist while the other chief, Gerald Fitzgerald, great name by the way, the 14th Earl of Desmond in Munster, and his brother John were imprisoned. In June of 1569, the allies of the Fitzgerald clan rose up in defiance of English rule. However, the rebellion was suppressed after four years. It was actually England's suppression of the Desmond Rebellion that helped fuel Queen Elizabeth's excommunication. Perhaps seeing how things went in Munster when they tried to refuse the Crown's orders, in 1576, Grania convinced Richard Burke to accept Lord Deputy Sidney's presence in County Mayo. They met with Sidney and eventually signed on to the terms of surrender and regrant. But Grania was smart. Even if they were technically English citizens, County Mayo was still far from England. Heck, it was decently far from the Pale. She could still have the freedom of the seas. What were Henry Sidney and the Queen going to do? Well, it wasn't the Lord Deputy or the Queen that Grania had to worry about. Even though they had signed on to surrender and regrant, Connacht still had a Lord President. 
and he would prove himself to be one of Grania's fiercest enemies. His name was Sir Richard Bingham. He was a British soldier from Dorset who had been serving in the military for almost 40 years before he was appointed the Lord President of Connacht in 1584. Before then, he had fought in battles all across Europe, including helping suppress the Second Desmond Rebellion that occurred between 1579 to 1583. The Second Rebellion was a larger-scale effort by the Fitzgeralds of Desmond. Gerald Fitzgerald, who had fled Ireland after the failed First Rebellion, returned with the aid of soldiers from the Papal States in Italy. The Second Desmond Rebellion would also end in failure. Gerald Fitzgerald was killed, his dynasty was wiped out, and Munster was officially brought into the Kingdom of Ireland, aka Ireland under English control. By two years after Bingham's appointment as Lord President, Connacht had fallen into a state of complete rebellion against English rule. Also by this point, Iron Richard Burke had passed away. Funnily enough, his successor was also named Richard Burke. And even though Grania was considered divorced from Richard in terms of the old laws, she still had legally been his wife in the eyes of the church at the time of Iron Richard's death. She was also still a woman of County Mayo, and a powerful one at that, now acting as the chieftain of the O'Malley clan. This position of power and prestige meant that she was now constantly under the eye of Sir Richard Bingham. Throughout most of 1586, a rebellion was being held against the Lord President, and its leaders were the Burke clan. Years later, Bingham would insist that Grania was the mastermind behind the whole thing. Knowing Grania's penchant for being an excellent and charismatic leader, maybe she was. However, by the end of the year, Bingham and his forces had managed to suppress yet another rebellion. But even though it seemed as if Bingham had come out on top and successfully made Grania and her allies kneel before his authority, it did not change the fact that he had painted a massive target on her back. And Bingham would not rest until he had brought down the mighty Pirate Queen. Grania knew that Bingham would haunt her for the rest of her days, so she attempted to do something to maybe keep him at arm's length. She began writing letters addressed directly to Queen Elizabeth. In these letters, Grania declared that she would be willing to use her fleet of ships to fight the enemies of the English crown. If the queen was to accept this offer, it would make Grania seem like a loyal ally of England, meaning Bingham had no reason to throw her in prison, something he had actually done earlier during the revolt in Connacht, though that stay didn't last for too long. Bingham still refused to back down and he would get his full revenge soon enough. Around 1593, Bingham's brother John would go on to murder Grania's oldest son, Yoan O'Flaherty. When Grania fought back, Bingham once more had Grania imprisoned. But that was far from the end of it all. Then, Bingham had her two remaining sons, Murrow O'Flaherty and Tibbet Burke, as well as her half-brother Donal, captured. Knowing that leading an army against the Lord President of Connacht would probably only end with her family being killed, Grania decided to go one step further. If confronting Bingham himself wouldn't fix things, 
maybe speaking to his boss would. So, at the age of 63, Grania packed up a ship and set sail for England. She was going to be having a conversation with Queen Elizabeth. Grania met with the Queen of England at Greenwich Palace, one of the many royal residences at the time that is now the current location of the University of Greenwich in London. Okay, so it wasn't actually as easy as Grania sailing to England and demanding an audience. She first had to send a request, after which Elizabeth, or more likely one of her advisors, sent Grania a list of questions she had to answer before she was able to secure a meeting. But all of that went through fine, so away to England she went. It's said that Grania refused to bow before Queen Elizabeth because, even though she recognized her as the Queen of England and the woman who basically held the key to her family's freedom, she did not acknowledge her as the Queen of Ireland. Their meeting was held under the constant watch of Elizabeth's guards, who had allegedly found a dagger hidden within Grania's dress when she was searched earlier that day. Due to Grania's limited knowledge of English and Elizabeth's no doubt complete lack of knowledge in Irish, the two spoke in Latin. Grania's demands were quite a big ask. Obviously, she wanted the release of Tibbet, Murrow, and Donnell. However, she also asked Elizabeth to remove Richard Bingham as Lord President of Connacht. It's documented that Grania used the emotional argument that every mother wants to ensure the safety of her child, and that's what made Elizabeth agree. But Elizabeth didn't have any children. If Grania did indeed use that argument, maybe she was able to muster enough emotional support that it swayed the Queen's decision. But yes, Queen Elizabeth did in fact agree to Grania's terms. Her relatives would be freed and Richard Bingham would be removed from power. In return, Grania had to become a supporter of the English crown. There would be no more rebellions. And if she was caught supporting the Irish lords, well, things wouldn't go over too well. There were some demands that weren't agreed upon, such as Grania being returned land and cattle that Bingham had stolen, but I'm sure she was happy enough to have her family and some sense of safety returned. Okay, but then things kinda didn't go that way. Yes, the men of the O'Malley families were freed from prison, but Elizabeth eventually reinstated Bingham as the Lord President of Ireland where he served in that post until 1597. But Grania? She would keep her word to Elizabeth. She no longer supported Irish rebellions. And actually during this time there was an active rebellion roiling in Northern Ireland. The Nine Years' War, also called Tyrone's Rebellion. In fact, Grania made an effort to support England during the war. She informed the current Lord Deputy of Ireland that she would send aid via her fleet. She also urged her son Tibbet to fight against the Irish Alliance in Northern Ireland. Grania O'Malley had been forced to turn against everything she had stood for, but in the end, it had allowed her to save her family and remain a leader of County Mayo. 
The exact location and date of Grania's death are disputed, but she's been recorded as passing away at Rockfleet Castle, one of the O'Malley's main strongholds, in the year 1603, the same year Queen Elizabeth passed away. Grania's life is usually compared to that of Queen Elizabeth's, whether it's a fair comparison or not. Both women were brought up to hold a position usually occupied by a man. They were both powerful leaders, and it obviously helps that the two actually met each other. But still, I can't help but feel bad that Grania's story does end on a bit of a downer note. She was a woman who desired freedom, true Irish freedom on the seas above all else, and yet she was forced to bend a knee to England in order to receive a perverted echo of that freedom. And yet, that didn't stop her from becoming an Irish symbol of rebellion. There are many songs, poems, and stories about Grania that hold her up as the beacon of Irish freedom against English control. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going back to mainland Europe as we cover another famous woman who fought against England. As King Charles VII was looking to secure his rule during the Hundred Years' War, he would turn to a woman who said she was sent by God himself to save France. Joan of Arc. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers.